was 20 years ago. You hadn't promoted yourself to general yet. You were just a petty drug lord. You and your gang of murderers gathered your small ounce of courage to raid across the border for food, weapons, <laughs> slave labor. My father was the village magistrate. A simple man with a simple code, justice. He gathered the few people that he could to stand against you. You and your bullies were driven back by farmers with pitchforks. <laughs> My father saved his village at the cost of his own life. You had him shot as you ran away. A hero at a thousand paces. I'm sorry. I don't remember any of it. You don't remember? For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, the day Verbal Diorama graced your podcast app was the most important day of your life, but for me, it was Tuesday. I'm Em, and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 233, Street Fighter. This is a podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, hi, hello, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you're just a huge fan of Street Fighter, as we all are, and I mean the movie and the video game. I grew up on this video game. Welcome to Verbal Diorama. Welcome back, regular returning listeners. It is so amazing to have you back with me for Street Fighter. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. I am, as always, so happy to have you all here for the history and legacy of Street Fighter. Now, before we get into Street Fighter, and believe me, there is a lot to say about this movie. I just want to say, as always, thank you so much to everyone who supported this podcast recently. Listen to the most recent episode. Mamma Mia has done incredibly well for this podcast on things like listens and downloads. People love Mamma Mia. It's really kind of come out of nowhere how much people love Mamma Mia. But also the recent episode on the Superman sequels, the quadrilogy of Superman sequels. And also the most recent episode on Donnie Darko as well. Donnie Darko, obviously, famously a cult classic, that not only managed to revive itself financially, but also still evokes questions about what it all actually means 22 years after it came out. But that episode was so much fun to put together. 
as was this one on another cult classic, the epitome of cult classic video game movies, Street Fighter. There's so much to say about this movie. It is a movie based on a video game that not only bucked the trend of video game movies not making any money, it didn't book the trend of video game movies not being all that great. That obviously had nothing to do with the actual video game and everything to do with what was going on behind the scenes of production, everything to do with the fact that they wanted to sell a bucket load of toys for Christmas and also funding Jean-Claude Van Damme's cocaine habit. Here's the trailer for Street Fighter. After seven months of fighting, the civil war in Chateau may have reached the turning point. The capital has just fallen. In December 1994, the forces of freedom will face a power-mad dictator in a struggle for the fate of the world. I don't think so. You have to do better than that. Okay. Yeah! Now, who wants to go home and who wants to go with me? Doyle leads an army of soldiers into the country of Shadowloon to find traces to lead him to General M. Bison, who's captured many innocent people, including three missing soldiers. Among them is Carlos Charlie Blanca, one of Doyle's friends, who Bison decides to turn into a hideous mutant. Meanwhile, Chun-Li is a reporter who seeks revenge against Bison for the death of her father years ago. Ryu and Ken are arrested, along with Sagat, powerful arms dealer, and Vega for dealing in illegal weapons. Guile recruits them in order to find Bison's base. Now this group of ragtag street fighters have three days before Bison murders the hostages and takes over the world. Let's run through the cast of this movie. We have Jean-Claude Van Damme as Colonel William Guile, Rule Julia as General M. Bison, Ming-Na Wen as Chun-Li Zhang, Damien Chapa as Ken Masters, Kylie Minogue as Lieutenant Kami White, Byron Mann as Ryu Hoshi, aka Ryu in this movie, a pronunciation that has stuck ever since, but technically it is Ryu, Grand L. Bush as Gerard Balrog, Robert Mamone as Carlos Charlie Blanca, Andrew Brianiarski as Zangief, Miguel A. Nunez Jr. as DJ, Jay Tavari as Vega, Wes Studi as Victor Sagat, Roshan Seth as Dr. Dal Sim, Greg Rainwater as Sergeant Thunderhawk, and Peter Tuiasasopo as Edmund Honda. 
Street Fighter was written and directed by Stephen E. D'Souza, based on Street Fighter 2 by Capcom. In the early 90s, it was tough to be a live-action video game movie. The first and arguably greatest, I said what I said, is 1993's Super Mario Brothers, a movie I unapologetically love to this day, while also agreeing it's not a particularly good movie, but it is great. Trust the fungus. The second was Double Dragon, only really remembered for starring that cute guy from Party of Five. The third, and arguably the most financially successful of the three, was Street Fighter. It was also the most critically derided, but money talks in Hollywood and Street Fighter was a license to print the stuff. While the original Street Fighter had released to arcades in 1987, it was considered a success, taking inspiration from Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and giving two players two playable characters, Ryu and Ken, and was ported to home consoles, such as Commodore 64 and ZX Spectrum. It was the sequel, Street Fighter 2, that really changed the game for developer-publisher Capcom. Released to arcades in 1991, it introduced special moves, combos, a six-button configuration, and more playable characters, each with their own unique moves and abilities. An estimated 25 million people in the US alone had played Street Fighter 2 by 1994. Owing to its enormous popularity, numerous updated versions with new features and characters were made available. As of 2017, Street Fighter 2 was the best-selling fighting game until 2019 and one of the top three highest-grossing video games of all time, with over 200,000 arcade cabinets and 15 million software units sold worldwide on the SNES and Mega Drive. This amounted to an estimated $10 billion in total revenue. It's widely seen as one of the most influential fighting games ever made, gave the arcade video game industry a renaissance, and impacted competitive video gaming to make it the lucrative industry that it is today. The new playable characters in Street Fighter 2, Ryu, Ken, E Honda, Blanca, Guile, Chun-Li, Zangief and Dalsip can fight each other, plus four CPU-only characters, Balrog, Vega, Sagat and M. Bison. Just to add a bit of confusion, Balrog is called M. Bison in Japan, Vega is called Balrog in Japan, and M. Bison is called Vega in Japan. The reason for the switch is reportedly that Balrog was designed with a likeness to Mike Tyson. M. Bison was short for Mike Bison. The American name change was to avoid a likeness infringement by Mike Tyson himself. Radcom had quickly realised they had to capitalise on their huge video game hit, and in mid-1993, before Super Mario Bros. release, news started circulating in Hollywood about the Street Fighter pitch. Ed Pressman, a producer who'd worked with Wolfgang Peterson and Terence Malick, saw the opportunity immediately and contacted renowned screenwriter Stephen D'Souza, who'd written some of the biggest action hits of the 80s and 90s, Commando, Die Hard, 48 Hours, The Running Man and Die Hard 2. He was also one of the 35 writers of The Flintstones, a story that I'll probably come to at some point in the future on this podcast, because yes, that movie had 35 writers. But when it came to classic movie action, D'Souza was your man. Capcom decided to give him a shot at a pitch, and D'Souza knew the material. His kids were huge fans of the arcade games. Again, something that's going to keep coming up in this episode, the fact that people do stuff because their kids really love it. Instead of pitching a standard tournament-style film like Mortal Kombat would do a year later, that's episode 159 of this podcast, by the way, D'Souza traded in his action chops, instead choosing a Bond-style action film 
with final boss M. Bison as a serious world threat, with his own secret base and a group of several notable game characters coming together despite their differences to defeat Bison, led by Colonel Guile, the quintessential American hero. Ah yes, the quintessential American hero, often played by Austrian Arnold Schwarzenegger and Belgian Jean-Claude Van Damme. This time, it would be Van Damme, and the decision to cast him came direct from the top of Capcom, and this was non-negotiable. Capcom also wanted the entire game's roster of characters to be included, but D'Souza fought back, excuse the pun, asking how many of the seven dwarfs they could name. No one could name all seven, and D'Souza argued that having a dozen-plus characters would cripple the story. Based on the rule of seven, seven wonders of the world, seven sins, the magnificent seven, and seven samurai, Capcom agreed on seven characters, and within a week, Steven D'Souza became a Hollywood director. As D'Souza began writing his script, he pictured Bison as the despicable leader of a fictitious state in Southeast Asia, bent on destroying the world with an army of superhuman soldiers who had undergone genetic modification. The special forces hero Guile would work with street fighters Ken and Ryu to thwart the evil scheme. But before shooting started, D'Souza intended to use a portion of the budget to train the actors in martial arts, and stunt coordinator Charlie Piserni, who also worked on Die Hard, came on board as stunt coordinator and second unit director. He advised D'Souza to hire good physical actors, and to get them as soon as possible so the stunt team could prep for wire work. D'Souza also enlisted the assistance of renowned fight choreographer Benny the Jet Urquidez. But before all that, before shooting started, Obviously, they had to get the cast in place. And while Van Damme brought the star quality looks power, a legitimate action hero, he also came with a nasty cocaine habit and a pending divorce. Van Damme would cost the production $8 million. Bear in mind, it only had a $30 million budget. So 26% of the budget was spent on Jean-Claude Van Damme. Raul Julia was a highly respected, classically trained character actor with the gravitas to play a memorable villain. He accepted the role in Street Fighter for his kids, who were huge fans of the game. But Julia had his own issues too. He had been diagnosed with stomach cancer in 1991 and continued to work through his treatment and surgery, including his work in Adam's Family Values, which is episode 176 of this podcast. It was increasingly clear to the cast of Adam's Family Values, especially his on-screen wife, Angelica Houston, that Julia's health was deteriorating during filming, but still he committed to Street Fighter as it meant his family could travel with him while filming. No one on Street Fighter knew the severity of Julia's illness. With Van Damme and Julia now cast, there wasn't much money for anyone else, so D'Souza saw lesser-known actors, martial artists, former bodybuilders and comedians, but they were still struggling to find talent. And remember that rule of seven? That quickly went out of the window as Capcom kept adding more characters to the roster, and D'Souza, tiring of the process of trying to cast the characters he had, kept acquiescing to their request. Each new character meant retooling the script, each new draft of that script meant re-evaluating the budget. With mere weeks to go until filming was set to start, they still hadn't cast Ken or Ryu, but Capcom had an idea. They decided to help out by offering Japanese actor Kenya Sawada for the role of Ryu. They knew the guy, he was a safe choice, but his English was lacking. D'Souza didn't want to hire Sawada for Ryu, he'd auditioned Byron Mann two months prior and wanted him instead. To ensure he didn't annoy Capcom, who were financing most of the budget, D'Souza suggested he create another new character for Sawada, the aptly named Captain Sawada. 
While D'Souza was the director, it became apparent quickly that he wasn't the person in charge. Damien Schapper had turned down the role of Ken until his son found out and suggested he had to do it. Then Schapper found out Rule Julia was in the movie and having Rule Julia as a co-star must mean this movie meant something. D'Souza had 99% of his cast in place when he flew to Thailand to start filming, but he was missing one role, that of Cammie White. No one had fit the bill, and to make matters worse, the Australian Actors Guild had suggested casting Australian actors to appease the Australian crew. On the plane to Thailand, he flipped through the Influent magazine, and on the cover, there she was, Kylie Minogue, a former small-screen star turned pop star, a huge celebrity with beauty and brains, as soon as he landed, he called her agent. Minogue was hired the next day. So the actors were set. The stunt training was lacking, but it was okay because the fight scenes had been set to be filmed last to give the actors time to train and the stunt team time to plan the complicated stunts. The schedule was done. They were filming in Thailand before moving to Australia to finish filming. But that schedule didn't take something incredibly important into account. Rule Julia's declining health. The production team's shooting schedule did not count for his severe weight loss and lack of energy because they were unaware of his condition until the star arrived in Thailand. Julia's dialogue-heavy scene work was supposed to kick off production, so the stunt team was able to plan and prioritise action scenes for the second half of the shoot. But D'Souza knew they couldn't film as planned, and so to aid Julia's weight gain and recovery, the schedule was flipped. The scenes not featuring him, the fights and action, were now to be filmed first and then the dramatic villain scenes would be filmed later once he had rested and recuperated. The cast and crew, once notified of the situation, all agreed to the last-minute changes. And as Rule Julia's family was also there in Thailand, and they treated the start of the shoot like a holiday, gradually Rule Julia started to recover and started to gain weight. Charlie Pisani was arguably the one most affected by the changes in the schedule. Many of the actors were meeting the stunt coordinator for the first time on set, having requested months in advance for the cast to rehearse before shooting. Additionally, he was required to train, choreograph and film fight scenes quickly at D'Souza's request. Often, Pisani and his team were improvising moments before D'Souza called action. There was little training, no preparation, and with immediate turnarounds, there was no way of prepping for anything coming up in the future. Some of the cast members did have martial arts training, some had military experience, but no one had the time to teach them anything new. Byron Mann learned the Qatar not from Benny Erkadez, who didn't have the expertise, but from a Thai extra. Cast members had a hard time understanding the roles because scenes were either cut completely or shot in a confusing order. And then some people on the set just wanted to have a good time. That coke habit of Jean-Claude Van Damme was apparently costing him $10,000 a week. He was so unpredictable that the studio had hired him a handler to ensure he was on set and relatively sober. But Van Damme kept calling in sick, which meant D'Souza had to rework the script again to shoot around Van Damme's regular absences. When he wasn't snorting the white stuff, he was having an affair with Kylie Minogue, admitting later that he, quote, knew Thailand very well, so I showed her my Thailand, unquote. And I'm sure millions of people all across the world would love to show Kylie Minogue there. Um, Thailand. So not only was Van Damme regularly taking drugs and fornicating, his handler was also not very good at handling him. In fact, Van Damme would regularly go out and get drunk with his handler, being so hungover the next morning he couldn't film. 
7 a.m. call times came and went, and other actors would have to step up and perform unrehearsed fights to fill the time. Van Damme was so regularly absent, and Capcom was so insistent on so many Street Fighter character inclusions that D'Souza quickly realised that his main star wouldn't receive enough screen time. D'Souza's production team had originally scheduled a nearly two-month shoot, which would begin with five weeks of soundstage and on-location work in Bangkok, and conclude with a few weeks of major set pieces and additional stunt coverage on the renowned Gold Coast soundstage in Australia. The on-location work in Thailand was as lush and beautiful as you'd expect, but the sound stages were old and poorly maintained. They contained holes in the walls and were basically falling apart. As were the people, skin irritations and stomach bugs were rife, with contaminated water the key factor. Many of the cast and crew struggled with the hot, humid weather and ended up malnourished, losing weight as the Thailand shoot progressed. Even the Bangkok power station couldn't handle production, with the energy demands causing a blowout. But, you know, this was a group of predominantly young men. And these young men of the casting crew, they had needs. Not those needs, but maybe those needs. Because you could get a Thai massage for $10. And they were working their bodies hard, and so they needed regular massages. So not only did you have Van Damme hardly coming to set, you also had these young men in the cast obsessed with Thai massage parlours. The young women of the cast, Minogue and Ming-Na Wen, bonded over dinners and became close friends. Wen would say later that she was in the best shape of her life while filming for Street Fighter, but the experience swore her off action movies. And of course, this is the same Ming-Na Wen that's been a Disney princess. She'd been in Marvel, Star Wars and DC. So she was Mulan, she was Melinda May, she's Fennec Shand, and she was Detective Ellen Ying, as well as being Chun-Li. What a woman, indeed. The production was 15 days behind schedule after the first three weeks of filming in Thailand and having a cast that was rapidly becoming thinner and a crew that was suffering from regular injuries. There was also talk of a possible coup in the country and the military would close roads without warning, meaning the production would use boats, soaking the cast and crew. D'Souza had envisioned the attack on Boyce's hideout to include helicopters, but was unable to do so due to the political instability in the neighbouring Myanmar which is why the AN troops attack via boats instead. Some of the big practical effects were getting out of control too. The art department built a temple to blow up, but only a quarter of it was supposed to blow. The whole thing exploded with pyrotechnics, including $240,000 worth of scaffolding, and everything around it was melted. Because of all of this, the production arrived in Australia one week ahead of schedule, having finally been defeated by the Bangkok soundstage. D'Souza required an extra 10 days of production to make up for the 15 days he'd already lost due to various setbacks. It's not unusual for a director to ask for more time, but Capcom, on the other hand, had a firm release date of the 23rd of December 1994. The highly sought-after holiday release window, which included a deal with Hasbro for toys, which were actually just remodeled G.I. Joes, but they wanted a Christmas release to capitalise on the Christmas toy season and so they refused to give D'Souza additional time. Rather, they told D'Souza that he would have to cram the additional 10 days of work into the already tight shooting schedule. The film's production crew, now made up of new hires brought in to fill in for the injured Thailand crew, saw through the studio's request for a rushed release date. Whole scenes starring the supporting cast were instead filmed by the second unit team, which was under the direction of Pisani, who was in charge of filming pickups and stunts only. So once they got to Australia, the second unit would film in Studio B and the main unit would film in Studio A, 
with D'Souza taking on the A unit and Pisserni the B unit. The A unit was assisted by cinematographer William Franker, who'd worked on Rosemary's Baby, Bullet and War Games. The B unit, led by Pisserni, was now having to film entire scenes featuring the supporting cast, rather than the second unit work they were supposed to be doing. Essentially, a first unit part two. This also meant occasional duplication, as well as some scenes not being filled by either unit at all. Production wrapped in Australia with 20 pages left to shoot, but the work continued even after the Australian filming was completed. When D'Souza viewed some of the pivotal bite scenes, he noticed that the choreography was sporadic and uninteresting, and that several pages of the script had not been shot. He also realised that the fighters' special moves had also not been choreographed or shot, so he called back a number of stars, assembled identical sets at a Vancouver studio, and conducted days of reshoots, including the Ryu Vega fight, which included their signature moves. So with all of this going on, there was another issue at hand for Stephen D'Souza, because parent advocacy groups were becoming sensitive to R-rated toy tie-ins after the success of the Robocop and Aliens franchises, both of which had toy lines associated with these incredibly graphic movies. During their first meeting, Hasbro and Capcom decided that Street Fighter must not receive an MPAA rating higher than PG-13 in order to sell these lucrative toys to kids who would be able to go and see Street Fighter in the cinemas. Now, Steven D'Souza had a history with R-rated movies, but he'd always planned to release the film with a PG-13 rating because he also wanted to appeal to the preteen Street Fighter fans and draw them into theatres. He was absolutely positive he had shot a PG-13 movie because he had years of experience working on family-friendly TV. But a week prior to them turning in the film to the MPAA, on the 7th of November 1994, 37-year-old Keith Nadega walked into his former middle school in Wycliffe, Ohio and shot and killed custodian Pete Christopher. Four others in the school were wounded. The MPIA would subsequently rate Street Fighter an R. So D'Souza had it back and started to remove things that could be deemed R-rated, such as blood, including bloody noses and lips. That was all taken out and Street Fighter was resubmitted, but the result was still an R. So he edited it again and he took out Impact, as well as the whole of the Ryu Vega fight, which is why it ends quite abruptly in the movie as Guile crashes in. This was the exact scene that had been shot at high cost in Vancouver, but it was completely removed. They continued to cut and they submitted it again. And the MPAA, they didn't rate it R, thankfully, but they went ahead and they rated it G, which was, again, the total opposite of what D'Souza was asking for. So D'Souza added a line in the script with a swear word and had Jean-Claude Van Damme come in for a day to re-record the line and that obtained the necessary PG-13 rating. Vega even falls on his own claw at the end of the film, but you'd be forgiven for not noticing that because everything around it was cut to shreds, excuse the pun, to avoid that dreaded R rating. Stripping the action also backfired Capcom because the process removed even more of the game's special moves from the final cut or in some cases didn't afford the time for their creation, including the famous Hadoukens. The edit was taking so long there was no time before release to put the special effects in this movie. Speaking of a man who loves a good fight scene, I mean, he's done plenty of them. He's also not afraid of a good action movie either. Is 
Keanu Reeves. And this is the obligatory Keanu reference. This is a part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. For no reason other than he is the best of men. This particular obligatory Keanu reference is actually probably one of my favourites, I think. And it was something at the end of Street Fighter that just kind of got me and said, you know what, this is pretty perfect for an obligatory Keanu reference. And that is, as I mentioned, Keanu Reeves is not opposed to a good action movie. A good example of that would be the movie Point Break. Now, Point Break has got absolutely nothing to do with Street Fighter whatsoever. However, at the end of Street Fighter, there is a tribute to the late Raw Julia. And it simply reads, Via con Dios, which means go with God. That is the same phrase used in the movie Point Break. And really, that is the simplest and best. And the only way to link Keanu Reeves to this movie is that one simple quote. This movie may not be the perfect tribute to an actor like Raw Julia, but Via con Dios really genuinely is. Now, there was a lot about Street Fighter, the making of the movie, that I did know. I did know about Jean-Claude Van Damme's cocaine habit, for example. But there was also a lot that I did not know about the making of this movie. One of the things that I definitely did not know about this movie was that MC Hammer did a song for the soundtrack. And if you didn't know that either, then I do not blame you. Because it's called Straight to My Feet. And it reached number 57 here in the UK. You couldn't actually buy the soundtrack to Street Fighter here, though. Because when it was released on home video in the UK, the soundtrack to Street Fighter was given away free with every purchase of the VHS tape at branches of Tesco for a limited period. And that was the only way, apparently, you could get the soundtrack to Street Fighter. Graham Revel composed the score for the movie. And as I said before, the deal with Hasbro for toys was incredibly lucrative. And all they did was reuse G.I. Joe molds, action figures and vehicles and just basically rebranded them as Street Fighter. It was a very cheap and easy way for Hasbro to make money at a time when the G.I. Joe line wasn't actually selling all that well. But Street Fighter would open as planned on the 23rd of December 1994. It opened four at the box office behind Dumb and Dumber, The Santa Claus and Disclosure. It fell to seventh in its second week and was out of the top ten completely by its fourth week. It was released shortly after Raul Julia's death. As I said, it is dedicated to him. And the post credit scene where Boyson is revived was actually omitted from theatrical release out of deference to Raul Julia. But that scene was retained in the home video and DVD releases. Street Fighter would go on to make $33.4 million domestically in the US, almost recouping its eventual $35 million budget and $66 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $99.4 million. Its home video releases, both rental and sale, and television broadcasts have been lucrative too, netting Capcom $165 million in revenue since Street Fighter's first VHS release in 1995. And while Capcom seemed to like the resulting movie and the multitude of characters included within, critics really did not. It received an almost universal panning and currently holds an 11% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'd argue that's a bit harsh, but I'm not a film critic, so. It wasn't the only Street Fighter movie released in 1994 either. Street Fighter 2, the animated movie, which was announced before the live action movie and completed in only six months, was released in Japan on the 6th of August 1994 to critical and commercial success. 
In 2003, Street Fighter 2 was rumoured with cast members including Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren and Holly Valance, but nothing ever came of the idea. Capcom attempted to adapt Street Fighter into a Hollywood movie once again in 2009, and this time it would focus on the character of Chun-Li, and again it would film in Bangkok. But the entire global box office for Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li was $12.7 million. The estimated cost of the movie was $50 million. So, yeah, that movie flopped a little bit. On the 3rd of April 2023, it was reported that Legendary Entertainment have acquired the film rights to the Street Fighter games and had begun working with Capcom on a new live-action film. So, we may get more Street Fighter in the very near future. Unfortunately, it probably won't include Jean-Claude Van Damme or indeed the mountains of white powder that he used to enjoy so readily in the 90s. And Street Fighter is one of those movies that does feel lacking. It does feel incomplete and it does feel cut to shreds. And then you realise it is all of those things due to the various issues on set, Capcom's demands and the MPAA's rating system. And you realise that under different circumstances, Street Fighter could actually have ended up so different. There are many stories from the set about what D'Souza did and what Pisserni ended up shooting as a second unit pretending to be first unit. They both have conflicting stories as to what happened, with Pisserni on the record stating how much he dislikes D'Souza. Pisserni even allegedly threatened to walk off the production a week before wrapping after a huge fight between him and D'Souza. Byron Mann would admit that at one point there was no director on set at all. William Franken had to step up to direct some scenes. D'Souza remains cheerful and optimistic about the movie because he still made a $100 million movie and he's rightfully proud of that fact. But Street Fighter remains one of those fascinating stories from Hollywood of how on earth did they get this movie in the can? And they did. And honestly, while it does feel incomplete, it's also a hell of a lot of fun. I love this movie so much, especially Raw Julia. In all his scenery-chewing glory, his lines are iconic, his delivery is fervent and passionate. He was the consumer professional to the very end. This is his movie, and in no way is he to blame for any of the issues this movie had, because the fact they had him was a blessing. But it does beg the question, what if they did have time to do stunt prep? What if actors had done more training? What if Capcom hadn't been so demanding? What if Jean-Claude Van Damme wasn't on so much cocaine? Now, Jean-Claude Van Damme's career may have faltered after this. In fact, most of the stars of this movie struggled with their careers after this, except for Kylie Minogue and Ming-Na Wen. Kylie is Kylie, the princess of pop, still blazing a trail after 16 studio albums. And Ming-Na Wen is a Disney princess, who's also graced Star Wars, the MCU and DC, as well as TV shows like ER. They are both doing incredibly well post-Street Fighter. D'Souza would go on to write Judge Dredd and Lara Croft Tomb Raider The Cradle of Life, another video game adaptation, but he would never sit in the director's chair again after this experience. But maybe we don't need to take movies based on video games that seriously. As the first profitable video game movie, Street Fighter deserves your respect. It may have lost its mind, but it never lost its balls. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Street Fighter. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can find me on social media at Verbal Diorama. You can retweet and you can like posts on Twitter. 
not X, just Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast and spread the word about Verbal Diorama. The Verbal Diorama podcast is turning five years old next February and it's been such an incredible ride. This is the 233rd episode of this podcast and it's really going from strength to strength. And that's all down to the people who listen, the people who share and to the people who support this podcast. So thank you so much. And if you have enjoyed this episode on Street Fighter, you might also like the episode that I did on Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. That's one episode, episode 159. And I also did episodes on the two Adams Family movies where I gush about my love for Raw Julia in those movies and basically my love for those movies in general and also very troubled productions on those movies too. So episode 119 is on the Adams Family and 176 on Adams Family Values. As always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Let me know what you think. So let me know if you did listen and if you did enjoy. Next episode, we are coming into the holiday season. So it's time to grab your fluffy slippers and your dressing gowns, a mug of hot cocoa, sit down in front of the telly, in front of a crackling fire and appreciate the holiday season with The Holiday. The Holiday is a rom-com I adore. It is a lovely little Christmas movie and who can deny the pleasures of spending the holiday season with Cameron Diaz, Kate Winslet, Jude Law and Jack Black. I am so excited to be talking about the history and legacy of the holiday. Please join me next week for that episode. If you do enjoy listening to this podcast and you do want to help this podcast continue to keep running, to keep subscriptions going, to keep the lights on in the studio, then you can. You can become a patron of this podcast or you can simply just give a one-off donation if you wish. So to give a one-off donation, you can go to verbaldiorama.com tips and you can just give a tip of a dollar or five dollars or whatever. If you feel like this podcast gives you some value, then you can provide a one-off donation. Or you can go to Patreon, which is verbaldiorama.com Patreon and you can become a subscriber to this podcast. And you can join the amazing Patreon family of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Fern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. Which is bizarrely the same number of characters that Capcom insisted were included in this movie. You can also get in touch with me if you want. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com. You can fill out the contact form and you can say hi. You can give me feedback or you can give me suggestions as well. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk too. And finally. Round one, fight!
Bye.